Hi, and welcome to Total Rewind, a Filmmaker's Compass podcast where we take a look at movies 30 years and older and see if they still hold up. I'm D-Man, joined by my co-host CP, and we have another good discussion in store for you guys re- revolving around a Stanley Kubrick classic. So CP, I'll throw it over to you. Go ahead and uh, introduce the movie today. Today, we're going to be watching the, well, we've already watched it. We're going to be talking about the very controversial film, A Clockwork Orange, as Dustin said. Nice. Directed by Stanley Kubrick and starring, well, Malcolm McDowell is, is, is really the star of the movie. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the entire movie is literally from his perspective. It's his experience, which is interesting. And we'll get into that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as you mentioned, it was kind of a controversial film when it was released. And, you know, that's for a number of different reasons. Um, it depicts a rape by the protagonist of the story. It actually depicts multiple rapes. Yeah. But I mean, like by yeah. the protagonist, yeah. which yeah. is, you know, crazy. It in, It's, you know, a number of, you know, it's one of a number of movies in the seventies. You know, we talked about taxi driver and different things that really pushed the boundaries of violence in film. Um, I believe this is notable because a clockwork orange actually received an X rating. Mm-hmm. which is pretty crazy in and of itself. Like I can't even remember what the last film is that got an X rating. I should have, I should have Googled it. Might be so, a clockwork orange. <laughs> yeah, it might be, you know, I don't even think they hand those out anymore, but I mean, we have to remember that the time this was released, um, you know, they were still relaxing some of the, you know, kind of regular rules around what was in cinema. Right. I think it was mm-hmm. Alfred Hitchcock's. Was it psycho where they like showed a, uh, toilet for the first time you know think, like yeah, yeah yeah that's like you know and that was in psycho was like what the 50s or the 60s 60s yeah so i mean that's the first time we saw a toilet in a movie then you can imagine we get to a clockwork orange 10 years later <laughs> you're like they blew the lid off this thing yeah um another you know at the time people attributed a lot of acts of violence in the 70s and the early 80s to a clockwork or orange. And actually that's one of the reasons why Kubrick placed a ban on public showings of it because he was apparently receiving death threats because people saw this movie directly impacting events in the world. Well, I mean, the gang is, you know, pretty, they, they have that, I guess, youthful exuberance. Like when you see them at the theater and they're like having fun, they're, they're relatable in that like teenage sense, but the amount of crime and violence that they're committing and committing, you know, willingly almost for fun Mm -hmm. is still pretty crazy when you watch it today. Yeah. And I don't know if that's, you know, something that makes this, you know, we, we call this total rewind and we're looking at movies 30 years and older and them holding up the fact that this is set in like a dystopian kind of future does that you think impact its ability to stand up? Is that why the the theme of like teenagers being rowdy and well that face value terrible criminals too? Does that help it hold up? I think it does. I think so too. Uh, I think obviously the themes that Kubrick is is looking at are very universal themes that are just as relevant today as they were in the 1970s, and that's yeah, the I mean, other reason why. Yeah, it's toying around with themes of, you know, um, aversion therapy, 
totalitarianism civil liberties you know yeah freedom an individual's freedom morality there's a lot going on in this movie which again i think is really contributes to why the movie stands up why people still check it out after all these years and it's really the themes i mean the main character is a fascinating character in that he's representative of evil i guess Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like he's not a good person but it's his journey kind of so he's not you know he's basically a villain Mm-hmm. And yet we're made to feel compassion for that person because they have their free will essentially removed. Yeah. Where it's like, hey, even if you're the worst of the worst, is that where we want to get to? And that's exactly. a really powerful theme. I mean, I think, you know, on the most surface level in our culture today, where we're seeing that is probably on like social media platforms and you know, the dopamine hits that people are getting and influence it has not that people are losing their free will or it's aversion therapy, but we've seen the success of social media advertising and marketing campaigns can sway the masses to really, you know, go after essentially fake news, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. conspiracy theories, things that, you know, aren't necessarily grounded in fact and logic. So, you know, those themes are alive and well today. And yeah, I think it's a big part of why this movie is culturally relevant yeah. and will continue to be. No, so, absolutely. Yeah, I, uh, you know, another thing that really stands out to me is the actual aversion therapy or whatever they call it in this movie, I forget, mm-hmm. where they have him, they put the, the helmet on, they open his eyes. And, you know, here's this guy who ultimately you know, he's a bad dude, but kind of, you know, a little bit like a tough guy, you know, you kind of think like, is this really going to work on this guy? Like there's Mm -hmm. probably a lot of like weak willed people where this might work. And you're like, I don't know, but sure as shit, uh, it goes through and works. And, you know, guy freaking hates his favorite music. Now Beethoven, you know, the idea of like a topless woman makes him puke, like crazy unable to stand up for himself in any confrontation. Yeah. It's, it's, it's insane. And is there anyone better to like kind of convey this than Kubrick in his, his such cool like cinematography and the way he frames things and does stuff like I cannot imagine. I don't even want to imagine this movie was made by like Spielberg. (laughs) No, that's a good point. Um, And probably part of the reason, obviously the book was around for 15 years before the movie. I never read it. So I don't know the differences. I heard that the, book has a more optimistic ending than the film and i guess kubrick did that intentionally he wanted to make the audience uncomfortable and he wanted us to feel this jarring impact but i think you're absolutely right if anyone other than kubrick was helming this film i don't think we would be talking about it today yeah it's because the impact it has on a viewer is not so much the content of the film, it's the way Kubrick presents it to us and, and the conflict that, that he leaves within us. Yeah, and it's, you know, I think we have to talk a little bit about the cinematography because it's kind of a, you know, a jarring yet beautifully shot film. I mean, Kubrick's known for uh, his framing, right? He's known for filling an image and here he's 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 constantly doing that but the way he does certain things just 
make you uncomfortable. Like I said, the aversion therapy scene, it makes me uncomfortable. Like I wouldn't want to go through that. Obviously the rape scene, the famous one yeah, is terrible. Like when you watch it, it's just gross. Like you feel gross watching it. And again, like you said, that's also because of the content, the nature of what we're watching, but the way that Kubrick films it makes you feel almost worse. So, no, you're right. In, in fact, in many of these acts of violence that we're experiencing early on in the film, he, he makes us, the audience, almost feel like we're there presently witnessing it. Whereas yeah. most filmmakers shy away from it, he really leans into it and it makes you feel so uncomfortable. And that's intentional because we need to see how terrible Alex is. Definitely. And seeing how terrible he is, yet seeing what the state does to him leaves us in this very complicated state. Yeah, right. And that's that goes back to this kind of you have this evil natured guy, but yet somehow the film makes us feel that sort of either, you know, I guess empathy for him, where we're like, man, you know, as bad as someone is, is this really the outcome we want? Mm-hmm. And you know, I think ultimately the answer is no. I mean, the film kind of posits too by the end that that's not really the right way to go. Yeah. Even though there's, you know, there's terrible people out there and they're going to do terrible acts. Um, you know, a government in particular, you know, what do they say? Like absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Like even if right. you start out, right. Like good intentioned and you're like, no, no, like we're only using this just to stop the ultra super violent criminals. Like, that's it. You know that eventually that'll be eroded. The bar will be lowered. And then it's like, you know, anybody that disagrees, we're going to condition you, you know? Mm-hmm. And if you introduce something like that, I mean, a hundred percent, that's what would happen over time. It would just get abused. No, absolutely. Um, just going back to cinematography, right? A couple things mm-hmm. that Kubrick does really cool is he plays a lot with power angles when he's introducing characters to show who's in power over who. I think the most famous example of this is at the demonstration where they are demonstrating to the politicians that Alex is a changed man, Yeah, right? These power angles, suddenly the dynamics are flipped and everyone else is so superior to him that Mm -hmm. as an audience, we know he's a changed man. Where in the beginning, Alex is shown in a very strong position. Uh, We... Kublik constantly puts us at eye level where we are looking into the eyes of Alex himself and almost seeing the face of this monster. And he also lets us see into the eyes of the victims. So we can firsthand oh, yeah. experience their horrors and their trauma, which and I think it does. Is, yeah. It's very powerful. It works. I think the best shot is, is during, uh, is, is when the, uh, the man, the one who ends up in the wheelchair at the end of the film, Frederick, mm-hmm. when we see him witnessing the rape scene, I think it's, it's, it's horrifying. You know, he's gagged and bound and we as yeah. an audience are just looking into his eyes and you can't help but feel horrible and powerless like him. And again, yeah. that's, that's Kubrick's framing of the shot. It's, yeah, it's very well done. I like what he does, too, with colors. Um, 
you know, he's playing, obviously there's, there's reds in certain spots. There's muted colors in others. He's wearing white, you mm-hmm. know, symbology in a lot of, you know, what he's, you know, trying to convey to the audience. I, I do think, you know, it's interesting too, because it's kind of like a dystopian society. So it feels I, to me like the way it's shot is, you know, a lot of the locations, the set design, things like that, they, they feel dystopian. They feel like slightly off, but very familiar. And I think that was intentional. I think he's trying to show this is a near future and this could be the future, right? Um, people are living in a world that is very 1960s, 1970s in terms of yeah. architecture, style, fashion. What he does is I think he shocks us into feeling like foreigners, like this could be a, a, a you know, a dystopian future. And I think one of the ways he really does that is by the sexual imagery everywhere, mm-hmm. especially for, you know, more, con- you know, in the past when they were more conservative, you know, that this was probably even more jarring to an audience where every single household, right. He's sitting there talking to his parents and there's statues of penises and, and naked women on the walls. And yeah, doesn't you know, somebody get hit in the head with a penis? I think they get murdered with a penis. Is that, yeah. <laughs> Is that, but, yeah, right. And, and he's showing us that this is not a world that we live in. This is a society which is in some ways uh, degraded beyond our current moral standards. Interesting. Yeah, that's I, that's kind of what I was getting at, like the way it, it it just feels slightly different, but very familiar. Like you said, it's it's still like a 60s kind of vibe, mm-hmm. you know, like it still kind of has that. So it's familiar. You're, you're there. You feel like, OK. Like I could see it, but then, yeah, there's just these elements of it that you're like, what the hell? That's weird. Mm-hmm. But, you know, screw it. It works. I think. I mean, it has the effect on the viewer. I wanted to ask you, I mean, what are your thoughts on during the rape scene? He is singing, singing in the rain. Uh, I did read. Apparently that was not a Kubrick call. That was a Malcolm huh. McDonald call. He thought that there was an element missing from, from this and he added it himself. And I think in a lot of ways it makes it so much more horrifying because Alex is presented as even more an an animal because he enjoys this and it doesn't seem to affect him. And he's almost taking this lighthearted approach to the fact that he is terrorizing these people and enjoying it. I think it. Yeah. And I think, too, the use of singing in the rain terrorizes us personally. We all know that song. We have a nice association with that song. It's lighthearted and fun. To put that there makes us even more uncomfortable because now we're like, damn it, if I go watch singing in the rain, is it ruined? (laughs) Like, is this a version therapy right now? Like, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. Can I watch that and not think of this? This is terrible. You're ruining singing in the rain for me. Yeah. So that was interesting. Um, I liked the use of Beethoven as kind of a trigger as it's classical music. It's music that allows the movie to remain kind of timeless in that sense, right? This is a dystopian future. And yet here's Beethoven from, you know, centuries ago. You're right. Especially with a lot of the science fiction of the time, they were leaning into the much more metallic artificial soundtracks. Yeah. So for him to rely on very classical music, I think in some ways it 
it touches us in a different way. And it probably brings this almost humanistic element to the film that is yeah. otherwise uh, very absent. So I didn't know this. Did you know that the title, A Clockwork Orange, is in reference to organic on the outside, mechanical on the inside? No, I did and not know that. So A Clockwork Orange, then, is actually a reference to a person that has gone through that aversion therapy. They appear normal on the outside, but they're mechanical on the inside now. Did not know that. That's so in- Interesting. Yeah, Alex actually embodies that. He's a clockwork orange. And another thing I read, which in preparation for this episode, apparently the, the phrase a clockwork orange is never actually mentioned in the film. So I believe it is in the book, but not in the movie. Now, I don't know if that was intentional on his part, but the only reason I bring that up is because I had to look up what a clockwork orange meant. And the movie doesn't solve that for us. It doesn't directly tell us this is what it means. Um, you have to do some digging or, you know, hopefully this podcast, if you're listening now, now, you know, right. Now That's you know. how you know. So, but finally, when we take a look at the story, you know, I think the number one theme in the movie is about, you know, free will. And Alex exemplifies this because literally at face value, they're like, he's cured, but he's not cured because on the inside, he would still commit the evil acts if it weren't for these freaking triggers. Right. So they didn't change his mind. He doesn't necessarily think differently. He just can't do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's, I mean, you're robbing somebody of their free will, but it's not, I would call that unsuccessful. You're just forcing people to be basically robots at that point. Well, and I think that's the point. Um, I think it's very much a film about unintended consequences. On face value, the government says, look, we have gotten rid of crime. We can rehabilitate people and they can go back into society and not be criminals anymore. Yay us. And they all celebrate. Yet we see the havoc that it wreaks on this man and it hasn't fixed him. He still is the same evil yeah, sadistic right? person. And at the end of the movie, we know he is going to go back out there and continue mugging and raping and murdering because that's who he is. He's a sociopath deep down. But all they did was rob him of his free will. Truly, mm-hmm. it's a conversation about morality. And he's still the same person as before. He hasn't changed. The, uh, there's a great component of the movie, right, where the pa- the the pastor in the prison stands up and he talks about how Alex is still the same person. This isn't him growing as a human being. This isn't him embracing a new moral code. He's still the same person deep down. It's just, he doesn't have the ability to act. Right. And he's kind of the only person in the film initially who is willing to defend how heinous this is. Even at the end, when he meets the, uh, the group of dissidents, they really just want to use this for their own insight so they can assume power, right? right. They yeah. can use this as an opportunity to punish Alex further. They're not actually interested in what are the true consequences of this. And we're stripping human beings of their fundamental right, which is the right to choose. Well, and the, you know, what's interesting too about like morality and free will in this case is that the morality comes back to us where we say, you know, is Alex even worthy of this free will? Because what is his ability to choose if not just a jail cell, right? Mm -hmm. A jail cell removes all your choices. I mean, technically, you're still thinking the same, you would do the same things, but you can't do shit in a jail cell. 
Yeah. I mean, what is it if not just a jail cell of your mind? So the morality comes back to us where we have to answer the question, is Alex even worthy of not having this happen to him? Mm-hmm. Maybe he deserves it. He's mm-hmm. a real piece of shit. Maybe, you know, screw you. <laughs> you lose your free will. You're terrible. Yeah. That's on you. You know, well, and I think, so it's weird because, you know, how do I, like, how do I feel about that? It's like, yeah, I mean, you could rot in a jail cell. Like you get meals handed to you. You don't get to pick what you eat. You don't get to pick what you wear. You don't get to pick where you go. Technically you have your mind, but he still has his mind. He can think what he wants. He just can't act on it. Well, and I think that a lot of that, I think that's why Kubrick included this element of, uh, as Alex says, Ludwig von, right? Yeah. It's finally at that level, we see how far they've really gone that the most fundamental things have been robbed of him. His ability to listen to the music that he loves has been stripped away. Yeah. This, this most basic element of freedom that you're right, even if you are writing in a jail cell, you could still whistle Beethoven. You could still listen to Beethoven. You could still think about it. And for him, he's so fundamentally deprived of that very basic freedom that we take for granted And I think the intention there is to truly put us as an audience in this conflicted spot the whole time where we're thinking, have they gone too far? Does he deserve this? Is this just, you know, karma for the terrible things that we witnessed him do in the first hour of the film? Yeah, no. And then there's also the morality of like, okay, right. He doesn't have his free will, but instead of paying for his crime and staying in for the the entirety of his sentence, if he goes through the aversion therapy, he gets released. Mm-hmm. They say, hey, we can release this guy because what, what do we actually have is he's not a threat to anyone anymore. Mm-hmm. But he never even paid for the freaking crime. <laughs> like if you commit a rape, even if you have aversion therapy, like you should still go through the sentence, mm-hmm. you know, like what the hell's mm-hmm. that? And no, I get you- it. It's like kind of a, you know, pilot program here. So they're saying like, you know, if you agree, like we'll let, release you early, but still you know, you could see that as being like, you know, kind of a, uh, I don't know if they would ever mandate aversion therapy, but if it was voluntary by people in jail, they could elect to get lighter sentences in favor of aversion therapy. Much like Alex did. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know, like then there's, yeah, the whole idea of like, just because you commit good acts, just because we can make you a robot and you won't do anything bad now, you still got to pay for your crime. Mm-hmm. Like well- you still did it. And I think at the end, because we spend an hour watching Alex do terrible things and we see that he's really just an evil person in every way. Then when we see him go through his sentence and we see how he has been transformed, not as a person, right? He's still, as you said, the same shitty person. He just is unable to act and his his free will has been stripped of him. Kubrick does this master job of looking at issues like incarceration right, mm-hmm. and rehabilitation, which in other ways you don't really understand, you know, outside of this film, it's very hard for us to, to have this conversation of how far is too far. Right. And the story does a great job of making us look at these things in a way which 
the best sci-fi does. It presents an issue in a, in a different way to an audience and it forces us to experience it and walk out of it debating these themes. Yeah, like another great theme that comes from the movie is literally incarceration and us, you know, being reflexive and taking a look at our, our prison system, right? Because mm-hmm. here, the, the movie posits that if this is available, it will be abused, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As if our own current prison system hasn't been abused or taken advantage of people or, you know what I mean? Like the system we have is already, you know, corrupted and all that type of stuff. Right. It's not like we have a perfect prison system now and we're just trying to make it better. Yeah. Well, right. And continuing the themes of this idea that power corrupts. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. The government really has no interest in Alex as a person. They have no interest in actually helping him at a, at a core fundamental right, yeah, level. Yeah. They want to be able to say that they've reduced crime. They want to say that they've rehabilitated criminals so they can go out there and work as contributing members of society. Yet right. when they realize that it's gone wrong, it's not even this act of, oh my gosh, we have, we have wronged you. How can we rehabilitate you? No, the government only comes back after there's all this backlash in the press of people, you know, where all these newspapers and media outlets are condemning them for this atrocity that they created. Then they come back in an effort to save face and they say, Hey, we're going to fix you. We're going to give you everything. We're going to take care of you. But it's just about them staying in control and maintaining power. I did want to ask you, you know, one thing that stood out to me as well is there's a scene where he sees his old members of the gang and they're cops now. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, again, when you play with that idea of like morality, like should those guys be cops? Should they have the privilege of even getting to put on the uniform after the things we've know we know they've done? And again, have they really changed? You know, or are they, you know, just criminals dressed up as cops that are probably going to abuse that power? Well, and I think this is a brilliant thing that Kubrick's doing again. And I assume part of this is based in the original novel. But the idea is when his old gang finds him out of prison, they treat him just like they would anyone else. They abuse Mm -hmm. their power. They are still the same fundamental, terrible human beings trying to hurt and take advantage of other people. The only difference is they have badges on their chest making it legal. Right. And there is a line where the government says something about, you know, the idea that we need to have stronger cops on the street to make sure that crimes are dealt with more swifty so we can get people into the system and get them processed out. And again, you know, it's this idea of the more power that someone has, the more they come become corrupted and the more power they seek by any means necessary. Fair enough. I don't know if there's anything else you want to hit on. I mean, I did want to just add one note that uh, apparently these characters did appear in the Space Jam, A New Legacy trailer. (laughs) So in terms of cultural relevance, I guess there's that. I did not know that. Um, (laughs) I don't even know if they were in the movie, but they they were in the trailer. I think what I think impresses me most is I think that as a sci-fi film, what Kubrick did is he is not inventing this world of grandiose technologies, right? There's not space travel. There's not time travel. There's not all these kind of uh, high concept 
components of a sci-fi film that we expect. Instead, he shows us a world that is not very unfamiliar. Right. In the sense that we can imagine ourselves being there in a few years. And he, in this film, he focuses on people. And he shows us how the costs of decisions have unintended consequences and what those are and how, and he roots this whole concept of science fiction in a very relatable human place. And I think that's why it holds up. Yeah, We're not looking I, at it for effects. We're looking at it for the message and, and this emotional journey that the audience goes on. Yeah, I have to agree. Uh, my verdict on A Clockwork Orange is it definitely holds up the themes. I think this is actually one of the, one of my favorite movies where I'm like, you know, I think what really is important from A Clockwork Orange are the themes. I think mm-hmm. they're very relevant. I think the story gets, like you said, it gets you thinking, it gets you re-examining yourself and maybe even some of our institutions. And because of Kubrick's direction and his ability to create this kind of timeless story that, like you said, thanks to the lack of pop culture references, the lack of, you know, uh, 70s sci-fi effects for the sake of effects, the movie does have this quality where it's like you can watch it today and it looks just as good as it did when it, you know, originally released. And the themes are just as important now today as they ever were. Well, and I, and I think that's part of it, right? And that's why I think it holds up. You know, if we were watching this movie 20 years ago, as we're having this, you know, global conversation about, you know, right to privacy and the surveillance state and, and the Patriot Act, this movie yeah. would be relevant. You know, 10 years ago, as we're having this conversation about corrections reform, this movie is relevant now as we're having this conversation, you know, regarding that we're having right now regarding vaccination mandates and vaccine passports and all these things, this movie still comes into play. It's, it's, it's the individual, it's the government and, and how far can each one go before Perfect. they've truly violated the other one and, and the, the institutional and fundamental rights. I, you know, fantastic, yeah. The movie is uncomfortable. It's not a movie that you're going to throw on and watch for fun. It's not a movie that, you know, when you want to have a good time and crack open a beer, you're going to watch. But it's a powerful movie, and it's just as powerful now as it was in in the 70s. Well said. And I think that's where we'll end the discussion on our end. But I agree. And I think if you haven't had a chance to check it out, you should definitely go watch A Clockwork Orange. I think you'll really enjoy it. And uh, if anything, like I said, it'll get you thinking. So maybe you're uncomfortable. Maybe you'll, you know, you didn't like it. You won't watch it again, but I think it's worth viewing. It's one of those movies that, you know, everybody should just take a look once you're an adult and use it as it is. So on that note, wanted to say thank you everyone so much for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have anything that you would uh, like to throw out there, be sure to comment on the social media posts or on YouTube and let us know your thoughts. You know, I think it was pretty easy to answer whether a clockwork orange holds up or not, <laughs> but that yeah. might not be the case for other people. So if you disagree, uh, be sure to let us know. I haven't said this before, but I also wanted to let everyone know if you're listening, uh, if you enjoy the podcast, go ahead and go to a- Apple podcasts or Google podcasts, leave us a review, leave us a five-star review. 
And if you think we're only a three-star podcast, feel free to do that too. But uh, we appreciate five stars, but we know we'd love to hear from you guys and get feedback from you directly about, you know, what do you like about the show? Is there anything else you'd want to see on here? And we'll, uh, we'll have some production meetings behind the scenes and try to, you know, make the show the best it can be. So you can follow me at Big Kid D-Man. You can follow CP at NDCal5. You can find the show by typing Filmmakers Compass into Google. It'll bring up our website. It has all our links to social, YouTube, and all the podcast directories. So thank you, everybody. We appreciate you tuning in. CP, I'll throw it over to you. Take us out. Next week, we're going to be watching another very uncomfortable movie, Deer Hunter. But until then, keep watching movies, and we're going to see you next week. <laughs>